Amen. Christ will hold us fast as we consider all this happened in 2020. We need to remember that our God has got his hand on the, the levers of history, and he is the one who is holding us fast. And so we thank uh, uh, the Lord for that reminder through song. I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts 24. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. We'll begin in verse 22. Acts 24, beginning in verse 22. Hear now the word of Almighty God from the book of Acts. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, I'll stop there and remind us that the way is how uh, uh, Christians referred to themselves in the book of Acts. So in other words, for an outsider, he's got a pretty good understanding of Christianity. That's what that means. So Felix put them off, them being the Jewish leaders who would come to Caesarea to accuse Paul and to prosecute his case. So we're talking about Ananias the high priest, Tertullus the, the lawyer, and the others from the Sanhedrin. So Felix put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. This is purely a stalling tactic. So you may recall from uh, the passages past, Lysias was the Roman tribune up in Jerusalem, but he, had, he holds a lower position than Felix holds, one of less authority. In fact, Lysias has sent the case up to Felix to have it decided. So for Felix to say, well, I'm going to wait till I consult with Lysias, just makes no sense at all. It is a pure stalling tactic. He doesn't want to have to make a decision. Verse 23, then he, Felix, gave orders to the centurion that he, Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Prison back then was a little different than it is today, in some ways much harsher and harder, but in some ways much easier, and one of these we see here, that you could be routinely visited pretty easily, pretty casually by just about anyone. It was easy to visit a prisoner. And here we're seeing that we're shown that Paul was to have ready access to his friends. And it's this time we're going to see in a moment that he's going to spend two years in this condition. And many scholars believe that this is the time when Luke was able to gather much of what we find in the book of Acts. He writes it up probably 10 to 15 years later. But he's accumulating the stories, taking the notes, talking to the people. This is when Luke has time in Jerusalem to go meet with the people who were witnesses to Pentecost and all of the early events that took place. And so we see they spend some time here uh, uh, in this situation. Paul in, in Caesarea, but Luke able to travel back and forth and go up to Jerusalem. Picking up in verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. I'm sorry, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. You'll recall that we had mentioned the fact that Felix was a corrupt man. We had also made uh, mentioned the fact that earlier in his testimony, Paul had made reference to the money he brought to Jerusalem. Felix seems to think that this was Paul's own money. 
You brought enough money to Jerusalem that you could actually help the poor in Jerusalem, that you could actually make a difference in their situation. You are a man of significant wealth if you can do that. Which means you can buy me. Which means justice is for sale. And that's what Felix is looking for. He's going to meet Paul with his hand out. He doesn't understand it wasn't Paul's money. It was the churches in Philippi and and other places that had gathered this money. But nevertheless, Felix is hoping for a handout. So he, this is Felix, sent for Paul often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded, succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The reason Festus appears in the scene, the reason Felix is vanishing, is because uh, just a few months earlier there had been a major riot and uproar between Jews and Gentiles under Felix's control, and he had mishandled it badly, and he is being recalled to Rome to actually uh, uh, face what was probably supposed to have been a death penalty for the way he handled things. He gets out from underneath it because of his older brother's influence. His older brother was the Secretary of the Treasury for the Roman Empire. And so he gets out from underneath this. But that's why he's being taken away. So that's why the little comment about he, he wanted to do the Jews a favor. He's just upset all the Jews by the way he mishandled this Jew-Gentile situation. And so now he's trying to, to uh, smooth things over with the Jews. On his way to Rome, he wants to make sure the Jews are all happy with him so they'll say nice things about him at his own trial. And so he's a pretty corrupt man. <clears throat> That brings us to the end of Acts 24. Let's pray and seek God's guidance in understanding it. Lord, we are an irresolute people who who cannot commit. We struggle to change. We struggle to recognize our need to change. And for all of these reasons, we need your help today. Move us by your word to be resolute in our desire for righteousness in our need for self-control, in our belief in the coming, coming judgment, but most of all, resolute in our faith in Jesus. Let us hear how Paul talked about these things and be renewed ourselves in them and resolute in them in the year to come. We ask that all the glory of Christ, we, we ask us all to the glory of Christ's name in whom we pray. Amen. So according to one researcher I found, uh, uh, these are the top five resolutions that Americans are making as we head into 2021. The top five resolutions Americans are making as we look to 2021. Number five, 21% of your fellow Americans have resolved to more aggressively pursue a career ambition. They're going to try to get ahead in their jobs, in their careers, in their professional lives. Not the worst thing in the world. That word ambition might be a little problematic, but, but the idea of working harder and getting ahead, not the worst thing. 21%, one in five Americans looking to do better in their career in the next year. Number four, uh, and the percentage jumps up significantly, 39% of us are hoping to eat better in the new year. Going to diet, going to change how we eat. A little more salad little less of that ultra-rare prime rib. Going to try to eat better. I sometimes wonder, if the new year didn't immediately follow Thanksgiving and Christmas, would that even be on the list? I wonder if we're feeling kind of guilty about all the stuff we've eaten over the last month here, and that's why it's on the list. But whatever. It's number four. Number three, 44% of Americans are resolved to save more money 
in the new year, to put more money into savings. That's, that's a good thing. We Americans tend to spend a little too much, so saving is good. Number two, 49% of Americans have this on their list. They want to lose weight. That's always at the top of the list every year. It's usually number one or number two in any given year. We're going to lose weight in the new year. And the number one, and only by one percentage, just, uh, just beat second place by one per 50% of all Americans have the following on their resolution list. They're going to resolve to exercise more in the new year. It's interesting, one, two, and four have to do with our physical bodies. Going to exercise more, going to lose weight, going to eat better. Numbers three and five have to do with our financial situation. We're going to do better in our careers and we're going to save more money. It's an interesting breakdown of how these things go. I looked back at our resolutions coming into this year. So a year ago, what were we resolved? The list was almost identical with one notable change. A year ago, number five, and it doesn't even make the top ten this year. Same researcher, same survey. Number five last year was uh, 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 avoid stress. I think 2020, we've all just kind of given up on that. <laughs> There's no way we're going to avoid stress. Don't even put it on the list. <laughs> Didn't even make the top 10 this year. 2020 just blew that out of the water. I want to ask you a question about resolutions, New Year's resolutions. Have you ever thought about the metaphysical implications of New Year's resolutions? Let me put that in different words. Have you considered the existential underpinnings of your New Year's resolutions, and I can see now some of you are leaning over and going, my resolution is to find a simpler, clearer pastor. Don't put that on your list. Cross that off. Give me a chance to explain. What am I talking about here? Well, the minute we make a New Year's resolution, we are saying this. I want to be better in the new year. In some aspect, with regard to something, I want to be better in the new year. But think about what that implies. Better implies that there's a a, a judgment call, a direction that you want to go, and you've made a judgment. I could eat healthier, or I could eat less healthy, and I'm making the call to eat healthier. I've decided that that's better. You're making a judgment call to go in that direction. Now, to be sure, when it comes to things like your own body, exercising, dieting, losing weight, You've got all the freedom in the world to make that judgment call in and for yourself. Right? It's my body. I decide to eat healthier. So be it. It doesn't really affect anybody else. Why can't I do that? And you can. That judgment call is a completely self-contained judgment call. It really has little effect. It does have some. We could argue that it does have some. But it has little effect on anybody else. But let me ask you this. What if your New Year's resolutions sounded more like this. You know, just like dieting would make me feel better about myself and exercising would make me feel better about myself and losing weight would make me feel better about myself, having your car would make me feel better about myself. And I'm going to take your car. Now, is that okay? The reasoning is exactly the same. I'm going to feel better. I like your car better than I like my own car. Why can't I just take it? And at that point, you go, well, wait a second here. You can't do that because it's wrong. And that's what I'm talking about with these New Year's resolutions. There's a philosophical underpinning here. You're making a judgment call to do something better in the new year, but the very simple fact of saying something is better implies that there's a judgment call, that there's a standard of comparison, 
that you can look at something and decide that it is better or worse because there's some way of measuring it or evaluating it. Now think about it though, if I want that new car and you say, I want your car, you say, no, I can't have it. And I say, why not? You say, well, because it's mine. I say, so what? It's going to make me feel better to have it. And you say, yeah, but it's going to make me feel better to keep it. And I say, I don't care how you feel. I care about how I feel. Right now we're battling within ourselves, my judgment about my actions. But at some point you're going to get exasperated and just yell out, it's wrong. The moment you do that, you've appealed to a standard that's outside of ourselves. There must be a moral standard outside of ourselves. And everyone does this eventually. My brother tells a great story. He was teaching high school, and he was having this discussion. They got into this discussion about morality and right and wrong. And one of his students was arguing that there was no right or wrong. And he said, do you have a $20 bill in your purse? And she said, yes, I do. And he said, could I see it, please? And she pulled it out, and he took it, and he put it in his pocket, and went back to the board and continued talking about calculus. And the whole class just sat there looking at him. And the bell rang, and he didn't give it back. And the whole class would not get up and walk out. They just sat there going, you're going to give her money back. He's like, no, she said there's no right or wrong. I've decided I agree with her. I'm keeping the $20. You know how this played out, right? She went down to the counselor's office and complained that Mr. Shaw, not me, different Mr. Shaw, stole her $20. Even those who claim there is no morality don't believe there is no morality. There is an understanding of right and wrong that transcends us. Now think about what that implies about the nature of the universe. If that's true, if there is moral right and wrong that is outside of us, and we all believe that if you push us far enough, that means there is a moral agency that transcends us. That's God. There is a moral agency out there. What I've just described to you in brief is known as the moral argument in Christian apologetics. It's been around for thousands of years. It is a well-established apologetic argument called the moral argument. Probably the most famous uh, development of the moral argument was a book written in the middle of the 20th century called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And if you've never read Mere Christianity, put that on your New Year's resolution list. Read Mere Christianity this coming year. Short book, easy to read, excellent development of the moral argument in Christian apologetics. Making the case that there is a God just by simply the fact that we know there's right and wrong. That is what's happening in front of us here in Acts 24, the end of it. Paul is making the case to Felix that there is a God. And he's making it based on the moral argument. Let's take a look at this more closely. Notice verse 25. Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, and Felix was alarmed. And Felix was alarmed. Let's look briefly at each of these. Paul reasoned with regard to righteousness. Paul reasoned about righteousness. What is the root of that word? Well, it's the idea of rightness, that there is a right and a wrong. It is the argument we just made. Paul is arguing with Felix, debating with Felix. Governor Felix, there is right and there is wrong. And you are frequently wrong, and you know you are. Your corruption, you're looking for a bribe from me. 
It's unrighteous. And you know it is. It's the whole reason that you're doing it in secret, calling me into your office here to talk back and forth. It's the reason you didn't ask for the money out in front of everybody. The very fact that we're meeting like this is evidence that you know what we're doing is wrong. What you're doing. And he, are, he reasons with Felix about righteousness. You are corrupt. And you know it to be wrong. You know, it's really interesting. We're approaching the end of the book of Acts. We've seen now many different examples of evangelistic uh, efforts in the book of Acts. You know which one we haven't yet seen? And we're not going to before Acts ends? Not one person. Not Peter on the day of Pentecost, not John before the, in the temple crowd, not Philip before the Samaritans, not Stephen before the Sanhedrin, not Paul or Barnabas or Silas or Timothy, not one of them opens up their evangelistic efforts with the phrase, Jesus loves you. In fact, here's something interesting, the word love does not appear in the entire book of Acts. Now the concept is there, but the concept is Christians loving one another, Generosity within the church for each other. Jesus loving those for whom he died. But this idea that evangelism would begin with the phrase, Jesus loves you, isn't there. Now we've got to ask ourselves, as we consider evangelism in the 21st century, we have to ask ourselves, are we really smarter than all the apostles and the early deacons? Guys like Peter and John and Philip and, 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 and uh, uh, Silas and Timothy and Paul and Barnabas, are we really wiser than all of them? And what we realize when we ana- analyze this is, if Jesus loves me, then I'm good to go. Why are you telling me I need to go to church? Why are you telling me I need to change anything? Why? He loves me. If he loves me, he's not sending me to hell. So don't talk to me about hell. You just told me he loves me. I'm good. The Jesus loves me evangelism method is pretty deeply flawed. That's why it's not in the book of Acts. But rather what we see here is something that we, the church would recoil at the idea of doing today. We see Paul saying, let me tell you about your sin. Let me tell you how corrupt you are. Let me talk to you about righteousness. That's unheard of. But that's the approach Paul is taking here. Let me tell you about righteousness. He reasoned with them about righteousness. Oh, by the way, as God laid out his covenant structure, as he laid out his word, as he laid out his progressive revelation, did he not lay out the law for thousands of years before he revealed the Savior? so that we would wallow in our need for a Savior, so that we would recognize our sin? One of the primary functions of the law, as the Reformed Christians we have said for centuries, a primary function of the law is to show us our sin. To show us that we're corrupt. To reason with us about righteousness. And that's what Paul does with Felix. We need to consider reasoning with people about righteousness as a way to show them their need. What do we see next? Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control. So what is that all about? What's going on there? Why does Luke include this? Well, 
I need to give you a little bit of background. Drusilla is mentioned here briefly in verse 24. She's Felix's Jewish wife. Let me tell you a little bit about her. So she's got some interesting connections in history. Maybe if I find them interesting. Her father was Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was the last person to hold the title of king of Judea. And we see him actually in Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, where he beheads the apostle James. Um, One of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, that James was beheaded in Acts 12, and it was her father, Drusilla's father, Herod Agrippa, who beheaded James. There's an interesting connection she has to history, but it's not why she's here. We also learn from history that her son, Marcus, died in the Mount Vesuvius explosion that buried Pompeii. There's an interesting connection to history, but it's not why she's here. Let me tell you two facts from history that I think are relevant to why Luke includes her here. One, the history books tell us she was stunningly beautiful. Drop dead gorgeous. Smoking. Whatever word you want to use. She was really fine. Number two, she was married. And you say, well, of course, Pastor. It says right there she's uh, Felix's wife. Ah, she wasn't married to Felix. That's why it's included here. She was married uh, to a man named Agasius Julius Assisus, who was this minor regional ruler in a small Arab province over east of the Jordan River. Felix is the governor of a much larger territory. So she desires to move up the social ladder in in the politics of the Roman Empire. He wants a hot wife. And despite the fact that she's married, he pursues her. They have an affair. She dumps her first husband and upgrades to Felix. No, Becky, that is not an option available to you. That's why Paul wants to talk to them about self-control. That's why there's this discussion of self-control. You guys don't have any. You just get what you want whenever you want it. You want a hot wife? Boom. You go after her regardless of the fact that she's married. You want to move up the social ladder? Boom. You marry the guy who's got the higher rung on the ladder regardless of the fact that you were already married. You guys have no sense of self-control. You have no willingness to live within the bounds that you ought to live within. That's why Paul's talking about self-control. It's why it is, uh, you know, because he's pointing out to them their problems, their sinfulness. Again, Paul's tactic is to demonstrate to them their knowledge of their own sin. They know what they did was wrong. You know, it's interesting. These events occur about a year after Paul wrote the book of Romans. And it's interesting how you can see the thinking that is in Romans is in Paul's head here. Flip over to Romans chapter 1. Turn forward uh, just a few pages here to Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to begin in uh, verse 19. Romans 1, starting at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely these, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Leave it open there to Romans for a moment. You see what Paul is arguing here in his letter to the Romans? God's divine nature The very essence of who he is and how he operates is out there for everybody to see. 
in the way creation is set up, in the way creation is made. You say, well, what's the divine nature got to do with anything? Well, one of the things we argue as Christians is that the moral law is a reflection of the divine nature. It puts into words who God is and what he's like. This idea that you ought to behave a certain way morally is because God is a certain way. And that's clearly known to everyone, Paul says. And he's working with Felix and Drusilla to point out to them their own sin. Stay there in Romans. Go to chapter 2, very first verse. We look down a little further. He keeps writing. He writes this. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You don't think this approach will work in today's society? Paul says it will. Look at what he's just saying right there in 2.1. He's saying basically this. Anybody who says anything about right and wrong, anybody who passes any judgment on anybody else, is admitting that there's right and wrong. Now the only debate is about who gets to decide what is right and wrong. So the moment the world, the moment your college classmate, the moment your co-worker, the moment your neighbor says, well, I just think it ought to be this way. I just think any two people who sincerely love each other ought to be able to get married. They have just passed a judgment. They've just admitted that there is a right and a wrong. And now the opportunity is to talk about, why do you get to decide what is right and wrong? And they're going to say, well, why do you get to? Well, I don't. Well, you just decided, you know, people who are same-sex shouldn't get married. I didn't decide that. The creator of marriage decided that. I'm not making that judgment. You're making the judgment that it's okay for them to get married. I'm not making the judgment they aren't. It doesn't matter what I think on this issue, because I'm nobody. What does matter is the creator has an opinion on this issue. And all of a sudden, they've got to wrestle with whether or not they're willing to stare down the creator and say, no, he's wrong. Take it away from what you think. And make it about what God thinks about these issues. Because they agree there is right and wrong. Now you just need to discuss what it is. You know, Paul later in, ver- in, ch- in chapter 2, verse f- 15, if we scan down there, we see him say this, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. The very fact that people have a conscience is evidence that, there is a, a, that they're made a certain way. And that they're made this way says there's got to be a moral agency in the world. Evolution would not produce conscience. but the creation and the image of a moral God does. Paul's letter to the Romans opens with a rather lengthy uh, apologetic technique called the moral argument. It's what we've been referencing already. It's how he's handling Drusilla and Felix. Felix, you are a corrupt and cruel man, and you know it. He turns to Drusilla, you are a a power-seeking, position-seeking tramp, and you know it. And he says to them, listen, you are sinful. 
And then we see the third thing. Paul reasons with them about the coming judgment. Paul reasons with them about the coming judgment. If there is a moral standard in the world, the only way it's going to matter is if it's ever enforced. It doesn't matter if it's not enforced. So one of the things, you know, we've got some boys in the army, and one of the things that they've been talking about, an interesting situation, the army was trying to change its physical, and I'll probably get some of the details wrong, and I'm sure they'll set me straight later. The army's trying to change some of the ways it measures physical fitness, put in different tests in place for different uh, units and different operations. And, and, and as they were trying to roll this out and train their soldiers how to do the new test and establish what the benchmark should be, and it takes time to figure out what all this should be, well, enrolled COVID. And all of a sudden, they weren't able to gather in meetings. They weren't able to put big groups of people, all the soldiers all in the field together and have them train. And so this whole thing's been put on hold. So the old standard has been set aside. The new standard hasn't been implemented. At the moment, there is no physical fitness standard. Don't tell the Russians. There is no physical fitness standard at the moment being enforced. There is one on paper. Now let me ask you, how's that going to work out in the long run? If it's never, now it's going to be COVID. Armies at the top of the list to get the vaccine and everything else. They're, they're going to get it back and fixed. But, but if it was never enforced, if there was never a judgment day, if there was never a, a day when they said, okay, you've got to come out of the field and prove it. Show us that you can measure up physically. What would happen? Well, you'd have a fat, lazy army where I'd fit right in. Do you really want an army where I fit in? In case you're wondering, the answer is no. You can have all the standards on paper, but if they're never enforced, if there is no judgment day, it doesn't matter what's on paper. And Paul says, listen, Felix, you know you are corrupt and cruel. Drusilla, you know that you have dumped one husband for another. And there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming. You see, one of the problems is that we talk about salvation... But what does that word mean? It means we're being saved from something. But what are we being saved from? I'm not being saved from a Jesus who loves me? What? I don't need salvation from that. And people don't know why they need to be saved because we've not told them about the coming judgment. The person sunning themselves on the beach doesn't see the need to run for higher ground if they don't know a tsunami is coming. These people, Paul says, he's, Paul's teaching them, there's judgment coming. And we see it has an effect. We go back now to, to, to Acts 24. We see there it has the effect. Felix was alarmed and said, go away. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Paul has pointed out the unrighteousness of Felix. He has pointed out the lack of self-control of Drusilla. He has pointed out the looming judgment. And the resolution of Felix, his response to this is, I'll deal with it later. I'm going to put it off and deal with it later. I'll, t- I'll think about it later. I don't want to deal with it right now. Go away. He calls Paul back and talks about it again and then go away. He calls Paul back and talks about, ah, go away. I don't want to deal with it. And his resolution is to be irresolute. But here's the problem. That sounds kind of neutral. You say, well, he didn't actually reject Christianity. But that's not how Jesus allows us to look at things, is it? There are not three categories of humanity with regard to this issue. There are two. Consider Jesus' own language. 
There is the narrow way which leads to life and the wide way which leads to destruction. That's it. Two ways. There is no third. You're on one way or you're on the other. Jesus says that there are uh, 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 those who are with us and those who are against us. That's it. Two categories. Not a third. There are not those who are neutral with regard to salvation by faith in Jesus. Jesus says when the end comes, when the Son of Man sits on his throne in glory, I will sort out the sheep and the goats. There's not a third animal type at that judgment. Felix can put it off all he wants. He can appear to be as neutral as we want to make him think. We want us to think that he is. But he's either on the narrow way or he's on the wide way. He's either a sheep or he's a goat. And all of us today face this exact same situation. We are today on the narrow way or the wide way. We are sheep or we are goats. We are with him or we are against him. There is no other path. And so the question before us is a question of righteousness. And we have to admit we are unrighteous. We have to admit that even against our own standard of what is good, forget God's standard, even against our own standard of what is good, we don't measure up. And we have to admit that we lack self-control. I love the fact, I did not plan this, but I love the fact that this fell right before New Year's. Because we all know full well what happens to New Year's resolutions. We don't have any self-control. They all go by the wayside within days. We lack self-control. So the question before you is this. Who's right about the judgment? Felix was betting that Paul was wrong. Felix is betting that there is no judgment. Felix is betting that he's not ever going to have to give an account. Paul says, yes, you are going to have to give an account. So who do you believe? Who's right? And by the way, let's live according to what we believe at this point. If Felix is right, if deep down inside you're going, no, I don't think there is a judgment. I don't really think God is going to hold us accountable. I don't really, I'm not even sure there is a God. Well, then live that way. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and there's nothing after that. What do you care? Why are you wasting your life in the church? If there is no resurrection, if there is no accountability, if there is no judgment day. But, if Felix is wrong, and Paul is right, then let's live like that's true. And that we do have to give an account. And that on our own, we have no hope at that moment. That's why Luke says, in verse 24, Paul talked with him about faith in Jesus. Because the rest of this doesn't matter. Convicting him of sin doesn't matter if he's going to stand hopeless in the judgment. Convincing him there is a judgment doesn't matter if he's going to say, yeah, now what do I do? I can't do anything in the judgment anyway. It's got to come in the context of, but there is hope in that judgment day. Because if you believe in Jesus, Paul says, listen, Felix, I want to tell you more about Jesus. 
If you believe that his righteousness can be yours, if you believe that your sin can be his, if you believe that his inheritance can come to you, if you believe that you can be his brother by faith to God the Father, a child of God the Father, a sister of Jesus, if you believe this, then it is so. And the coming judgment day no longer holds fear, but excitement, hope. Reward, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. So the only resolution that really matters is this. Which version of the future do you believe? Is there a lingering judgment out there or isn't there? If there's a lingering judgment out there, if Paul is right, then be resolved to cling to Jesus. Be resolved to trust his righteousness. Be resolved to hope in him and in him alone. Be resolved to attend his flock and hear his word every Sunday. Be resolved to sing his praises from your lips each Lord's day. Be resolved to tell others about it. Be resolved to be blessed at his table on a, you know, on a regular basis. Be resolved to enjoy all the blessing now that leads up and points to the promised blessing at the coming day of judgment. He resolved to go to the cross. How does the book of Hebrews say it? For the joy that was set before him, for you and for me, that was the joy. He resolved to go to the cross. We need to be resolved to accept that. That's it. And we can have the enthusiasm for life that Paul had rather than the fear under which Felix lived. Let's pray. Lord, as I opened up, I close. We are irresolute. We are uh, in, unable on our own to make life-changing decisions and to cling to them. And so we need you to make them for us, in us. Change our will so that it will be amenable to the salvation offered in Jesus. Change our hearts so that they will desire to hear you speak to us. Change our lips so that they will joyfully proclaim your praises. Work in us this New Year's season so that we are a changed people for the wonder of what Jesus has done and to the glory of his name. We pray this. Amen.